Welcome to episode 700 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Right here, team, welcome along to episode 700 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Isles. It's pretty cool to be here right now because I'm actually doing this before Christmas. So, uh, happy new year and happy 700th episode of I Am Talk. John is away right now. We are in the second of our holiday shows. We will be back in the studios, back to normal next week. But before we get into it, uh, I want to say a big thank you to all our sponsors, Extreme Endurance, and our patrons. You guys are absolute rock stars. We love the support you give to the show. It really means a lot and it helps us keep doing what we do week in week out this week's show so another it's another one of my interviews now often when it comes to diet discussions i often bring up a book by the name of the gluten lie um and it's a very fascinating book because it's a book that kind of shows you how sometimes people in the dietary world will use techniques to kind of sell philosophies that maybe aren't so true uh and Nutrition's always, always a, a mixed bag. Like, you know, it's, it's been interesting watching the discussion around the game changes right now and just both sides of the argument fighting against each other and stuff. And and this, the thing about this book, The Gluten Lie, is it's, it just kind of shows some really cool techniques. It just shows you how people show these philosophies. And so when I read the book, I was really quite fascinated by it. So then what I did is I got an interview with the, 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 or the writer of the book, a guy by the name of Alan... Levinovitz and he um yeah he, it was actually a really cool interview and uh, some really good insight in there so I thought you know because I talk about a lot on the show and we are in that Christmas period where we kind of just get some of my interviews from the Bevan James Oil show I thought I'll chuck this one up this week so you can have a listen to it so I'm pretty much going to get straight into it before I do I just want to have a quick mention of our amazing sponsor and that is Extreme Endurance your lactic buffer and now one thing you may want to look at right now is they've got if you go into their website xendurance.com They've got some new products up recently, and one of them is called, I'm just waiting for the website to load here, one of them is called Lean Plus. Now Lean Plus is is kind of for those athletes who are looking to kind of get a little bit leaner as an overall thing. And so basically what it is, it promotes lean body mass and fat loss at the same time. So it's kind of a mix of protein, it's got some things that are going to help you also lose your body weight and stuff as well. So if you are the athlete who is looking to... You know, lean up a little bit, or maybe you are just carrying a bit too much weight. Now, one thing they do say here, you do to lose weight, you do need to make sure that you've got an uh, exercise program in place, you've got a, a, a low-calorie nourished meals and stuff like that. So this is just a, something to add to that formula, but it's basically a good option for those who are you know, just trying to lose a couple kgs along the way. So at least not even just get leaner along the way. So you can check out Lean Plus. They've also got their protein formula, which is just called Lean. So you can just, you know, check out all their products. X Endurance, the thing is, the feedback we get from you guys is that they do great work. They're great to work with. Uh, It's been interesting watching them building of their company over the years. They've become this really big, company because they just keep creating great products and so while you're on the website check it out you may even want to check out the instagram page as well but you know if you want to better your performance and you look at some good options around supplements to do that check out xendurance.com anyway here is my interview with alan the writer of the gluten lie Okay, team, well, I'm very pleased to have on the show today a, name by, a man by the name of Alan Levinovitz, and I've asked him how to say that a thousand times before I started the interview. Um, he is the author of the book called The Gluten Lie, and it's a very, very interesting book, which I um, highly recommend everyone has, gets hold of and has either read or listened to, because it's, um, it's, a, it's a very interesting subject. So first of all, welcome along to the show, Alan. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, it's really good to have you. So I suppose, first of all, can you tell me a little bit of your background? Because I know there's some people, there's been a little bit of criticism around your background, maybe not necessarily be the right fit for uh, uh, writing a book like this. But in some ways, actually, I think it's a real strength for writing a book like this. But maybe can you tell us where you come from historically with your academic career? Sure. So 
I, as an undergraduate, uh, I, I was a philosophy and religion major at Stanford, and then I got my PhD in religion and literature at the University of Chicago. And so what I see myself as, as specializing in academically is, is the way in which people make arguments. What kinds of proofs do they use? Do they tell stories? Do they give anecdotes? Do they use data? Do they issue commandments? And so I've looked at this primarily in the context of religion. And what I started to notice, as I'm sure many of your listeners have noticed, is that much of the way in which people talk about diet and nutrition today in supposedly secular, non-religious ways actually resembles the way in which religions have talked about food and diet. And so that's the way I came into this conversation. So could I, before we kind of get into the, the book, what drew you towards that type of study? What drew me towards what? The, your, your original study. What drew you towards the religious study? Yeah. And uh, So I was – I – I started, when I first started college, I was interested in bioethics. And, and then I realized that what, what really fascinated me were the ways in which people made arguments. So people would tell a story in order to make a point about what was ethical or what wasn't ethical. Mm. And the best stories, honestly, were in religious traditions. And really? so I, I ended up getting really interested in, you know, stories like Adam and Eve or, you know, parables in that, you know, people are familiar with parables from the Christian Bible. And then also, you know, my own area of specialty, Chinese religion, there's all sorts of fascinating ways in which these philosophical and religious traditions have tried to make the case for the various truths that they believe in. So basically, religion has been so good at spreading influence. What have been the methods that have helped them to spread that influence? That's exactly right. And then also seeing how those methods appear in, in the least likely places. So, so then uh, you're saying that it kind of led towards you finding this in nutrition. So how did that kind of start to pop up for you? Well, you know, I had this, I lived in China for two years and I remember this was in, let's see, I want to say 2003, 2004. And I, I had a, a bunch of expats there who didn't speak Chinese who were very sensitive to MSG. And that's what they would tell me. They would ask me to have people remove the MSG when we were eating out at Chinese restaurants. And for a long time, that's what I did. I asked them in Chinese to do that. And then once the waiter told me, he said that we can't do that. Uh, there's already MSG in everything. The the salad, the peanuts that, that your friends are eating right now already have MSG in them. And I was sort of shocked to hear that. And I said, well, they've been removing it at other restaurants. And he said, no, they haven't. They've just <laughs> been telling you that. They've just been telling you that. And I was like, well, that's funny. So so from then on, I, I did a sort of bad thing. Is I, I, did, I did not actually tell people to remove the MSG. Um, and lo and behold, no one no one got headaches. And so I did a, I did a little research on the history of MSG and MSG sensitivity. And I found that, that the scientific consensus was that in the vast majority of cases, uh, MSG doesn't produce a reaction in placebo-controlled trials. And, and that was really fascinating to me. And I sort of filed that away in the back of my mind. And then, you know, fast forward seven years, and I, and I saw the debate about gluten had a lot in common with the debates about about MSG and its healthfulness. And I thought, well, this may be something I, 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 should, I should look into a little bit more. And, and from there, the book project just took off. Now, in opening the door to this project, you know, it's, it's really interesting if you look at your Amazon reviews. It's, it's very much top end and bottom end, isn't it? There's this kind of, and I think it really shows the example of what you're showing in your book. You know, there's people who kind of understand what you're trying to get across. And then there's people who are kind of just disregarding you because you are going against some of the trends of some of the methods that are you exposed in your book. How did you, did you know you were going to be facing this kind of anti against what you were putting out there uh, and going into the experience? You know, I should, I should have <laughs> since, <laughs> si since the, since the thesis of the book is that dietary beliefs are like religion for many people. I should have understood that pushing back against that would cause a backlash. What I didn't expect was for people to not respond to what I said. So, so one of the things that really frustrated me is people, you know, I'll hear people saying things like, well, what's he saying? Is he saying that we should just drink a, a liter of Coke every day and, you know, wash down our Twinkies with that? Uh, is he saying that no one has celiac disease? Is he saying, you know, so mm -hmm. I get this, I, there's this sort of, this, the response that I didn't expect was people essentially implying that if you're not 
super restrictive. And if you don't believe in clean eating or whatever, you know, current dietary fad people are into, if you don't believe in those things, then you must be just some kind of crazy who sits in front of the TV and eats processed foods all day. And of course that's not true, but dealing with people who think that there's only those two alternatives, right? You're either Mm. hardcore paleo or, you know, you're dying of obesity. Yeah. That's, that was a little weird to me. Uh, so one thing, one thing we definitely noticed in the last period of time is that people have definitely, it's almost like their diet is their identity. And in some ways it's the dangerous thing where, um, you know, what I eat represents who I am as a person. And uh, so for someone like you to bring a book out that would maybe, you know, contradict or, or differ in their opinion, it's almost like they have to put the gloves on against you to fight against you, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something, you know, I, one of the funny things I discovered while researching the book is that there's a lot of food-based insults. So people have always <laughs> used what they eat, you know, so like a shit eater or a frog eater or a pump, pumpkin eater, sweet potato eater. You know, we, we have always differentiated ourselves from other people in part by saying, well, what they eat is disgusting and what we eat is, is not. It's clean and pure. <laughs> so um, I suppose, so, so some questions to where to start. So first of all, one of the things you're really trying to get across with this book is that the use of maybe incomplete science or bad science to promote maybe not true facts. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. So can you maybe give me some more detail of what you're thinking here? Sure. Well, let's start with, I mean, I'll start with gluten, which is a really good example. Um, I, I, I've spoken with a, with a really prominent researcher at Monash University, Peter, Peter Gibson, and I've read work by one of the world's leading gluten sensitivity researchers, Dr. Alessio Fasano. And what's interesting about both of these men is that they get cited in, in hugely popular books like Wheat Belly and Grain Brain. And I, I was shocked, quite frankly, to find that these men themselves don't agree with the conclusions of books like Grain Brain and Wheat Belly. So what I found was that when you actually went to the scientists and the researchers, the ones who were really doing the work and, and, and figuring out these very difficult nutrition questions, they aren't making promises of miraculous healing. They aren't saying that we figured out that gluten is this huge villain that everyone ought to eliminate from their diets. And I, one of the things I want to get out there with this book is, is to get people thinking critically about the sources of their information. Who are we listening to? And and why is the story that they're telling so convincing and appealing to us? But, but it's, it's almost the battle for the everyday person, isn't it? Because, um, you know, like a lot, of, a lot of what we see out there and what's reported, I actually watched a very interesting documentary a few weeks ago and they're talking about how easy it is to get bad science reported in mainstream media. And this guy actually deliberately created a bad science piece and, and he managed to get it all out there all around the world in the media. And uh, And it's one of the problems that, Joe Public, like, you know, who maybe don't have the time and the resource to kind of commit to high-level research, like, how, how are we meant to actually see that? Yeah, that's, you know, so this is, again, you, you asked me about my background. One of the things that I think I can help people with is, is figuring out what kinds of rhetoric or ways of talking to trust okay, and what kinds, of, what kinds of words or alarm bells. So when you see the word miracle, that's a that's a big alarm bell if someone says you know i've seen miraculous changes in my patients or i've seen miraculous changes in the people that i work with you want to think to yourself hmm this person sounds like they're trying to sell me something that's too good to be true or if you hear someone talking about how conventional wisdom has it all wrong. And they're the, you know, no one believed Einstein. You know, anytime someone's comparing themselves with a misunderstood genius or anytime someone is saying, you know, everyone, all of conventional wisdom is wrong and they're the ones that are going to show you the truth. Those are alarm bells because in reality, the, the people that they're actually citing. So when you read these people who are like, oh, I've got this miraculous diet or, oh, I figured out what conventional wisdom doesn't understand. Well, they're citing studies that are produced by you guessed it, conventional wisdom, researchers at universities, you know, so they're, they're simultaneously calling out, you know, these institutions of science and mainstream medicine as, as fraudulent, but they're also, you know, in the, in the same breath, citing them as authorities on, on whatever it is that they want to sell you. So those are the, so those are the, some of the warning signs to look out for. You, you talk about some of the memes that get repeated: good versus evil, natural versus man-made. Um, you know, what are some of the things that we we should be seeing 
you know, more of detailed of those kind of those level of things, you know, the, the magical kind of stuff you talk about. Yeah, those are the, those are some more, uh, those are some more warning says I'm really, I'm really glad you brought those up. So when people talk about clean or unclean or pure and impure, those are words, you know, as a religious studies scholar that, that don't belong in science. You won't hear actual scientists saying, so we measure the, you know, how, how morally good this food was and, and against this, this food that has, is impure and unclean, right? Those are, those are words that have been imported from, from philosophy and religion, and they don't belong in, in discussions of nutrition. Similarly, there's this myth that I talk about in the book, the, the myth of paradise past. And this mm. is most, you know, everyone's familiar with this. Adam and Eve, there was a paradise back in the day when everything was great, right? We have, you know, the expression, the good old days. Yeah. Well, the, the good old days, yeah, some things were good in the good old days, but some things weren't so good. And when you hear people trying to sell you a story of a past in which everything was clean and pure and no one needed medicine because they were all eating, you know, raw sweet potatoes from the ground, that's, that is a moment at which you ought to be suspicious. We can't know whether something is good or bad for you based on whether it's from the past or whether it's from modernity. The truth is that nutrition is more complicated than that. You also talk about um, the evils, you know, like the big corporates, you know, they're all trying to, to make a profit and hurt our health. And, and you know, it's, it's hard not to look at, you know, like look what Coca-Cola brought out the other day, this whole idea of that it's, it's the movement, it's not the food. Um, you, know, it's, yeah. you know, it's easy to kind of look at that and argue that actually corporate is just looking at us at a dollar factor and uh, trying to, who cares about our health? You're, you're absolutely right. And, and I, I am super suspicious. And I talk about this in the book again. I'm, I'm very suspicious of corporate conflicts of interest. That's, a, that's something these companies, they want to sell us as much hyper palatable food as humanly possible. Mm. But you know what? There's also companies that want to sell us organic food. And they're funding people to talk about the evils of GMOs and to fund studies that show how great organic food is for you. And then, of course, there's also people who want to sell you their their blog posts, uh, you know, which are hooked up with, with advertisements like mm-hmm. the food babe, for example, or people that have a diet that they want to sell you. And when these diet books are selling millions and millions of copies, you got people like, I think it's Pete Evans in, yeah, in nice Australia, stuff. you know, it's, it's, there's always conflicts of interest everywhere you look. And so I'm not saying don't be suspicious of corporations. I'm saying use your critical thinking skills to take a deep breath and realize that sometimes there's conflicts of interest where we're not expecting to find them. It's not just the corporations. It's also people who want to sell you miracle cures or prove that they, they have countercultural wisdom, right? So it's, it's equal opportunity skepticism. And I think sometimes people forget about that and they got caught up in these narratives of evil corporations fighting against good holistic doctors or good holistic nutritionists. Whereas the truth is it's, it's really more complicated than that. You aren't afraid to name names in the book, which I kind of respect in some ways because you do you you kind of point the finger at some people who you think are very bad examples of um, you know everything that you're talking about in this book uh, and using it to their advantage. Uh, were you fearful of doing that? You know, I should have been. <laughs> I, 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 again, you know, you asked me, was I expecting the backlash? Yeah. If if diet is like religion then these people who have put out these massive bestsellers, they are like saints. Mm. They are like demigods. And so when I attack these people, even if I show very good evidence that they've been fraudulent, so if I can find, for example, that one of them ran a study and the, that showed that he was wrong but never reported on it or something like that, people just don't want to see that. They don't want to believe it because they don't want to have their saints shown shown to have feet of clay and and so i now in retrospect i realize i should have been gentler because it alienates people to see that the people they revere actually might not be all that they're cracked up to be at the same time it's important to expose these 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 bad these bad scientists or these people who get ahead of the science for who they are that the, the public really needs to know what's actually going on and what they're being fed so to speak I suppose, you know, if, 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 if someone's listening to this right now, you know, obviously the goal of your work is to expose people to, you know, these techniques that help us realise that we need to be a bit more of a sceptic and we maybe have to, you know, have a bit more of an open mind to maybe there's not so much truth to what's being told to us or at least explore it to a higher level. Um, when you think about that for the everyday person, but then they get kind of caught up in this whole idea of that I am this thing as well. How do they, how do you think it's easier for someone to let go of that? 
One of the things I think is important for people to realize is that they're, you know, you, they're going to have to do what's best for themselves. And so if you found a dietary lifestyle that's good for you, more power to you, you should keep that up. But what I found exploring this community, the wellness community, is there are a lot of people for whom it has become pathological, where they can't go to a family dinner because they're afraid that the food is not going to be food that they can eat, or they're terrified that their kid's going to go to a party and have a cupcake with artificial flavoring or sugar in it. And, and, and I would say if you are a person who is, is starting to question whether your devotion to your diet or your lifestyle is really actually making you happier, or maybe you're not getting quite as much out of it as you want. For those people, I would say, hey, you know, pick up my book and, and start to look at the foundations of the commandments that you've been given. Start to look at the people who are giving you these dietary commandments. Start to look at the history of the way that we've come to fear certain foods and the way in which that history is often not based on science. And I think just seeing that, you know, the Wizard of Oz pulling back the curtain, right, is really helpful when you're trying to overcome, you know, excessively dogmatic attitudes towards, towards food and towards your own wellness. But th- this is a challenge, but isn't it? Because if we think about it, like I was funny, I was talking to a guy a while ago, and he actually went to one of Pete Evans' paleo conferences, and uh, and he was quite funny because he said he actually said it was like a religious cult. He said it was crazy, <laughs> uh, you know, all these people were in this religious cult. And the, but then he said the funny thing was, you know, like what Pete was saying was all, you know, put your hands up if it's worked, and everyone put their hands up, and um, and then. And he goes to me later on in the conversation, but I've, I've kind of started doing paleo and I've lost, you know, a crap load of weight and all the rest of it. And uh, But then in the same context, he's kind of saying to me, well, you know, I've, I've stopped eating junk food, which I ate a lot. I've stopped eating sweets, which I ate a lot. I had too much alcohol, which I reduced. So it was kind of obvious to me that, well, you've just created behavior changes that if anyone had got you to do that, you would have created results that you desired. Um, but at the same time, now that you have this context that you've labeled it with paleo, it's, it's when I've had proof that showed me I've been successful with this, it's kind of easy to see why people do become these kind of, you know, preachers of the gospel. That's that. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. In fact, one of the one of my favorite lines from an interview with a with a researcher. This was Peter Gibson at Monash University. He said, "You know, people come to me and they say I'm feeling better because I've eliminated gluten, but then they tell me what they've done, and I could point to about a million things they're doing better. So rarely do people just." you know, go from eating a very, very healthy, balanced, home-cooked diet to eliminate it, to, to going paleo. Usually that, that comes in the context of a kind of health crisis or realizing that they just have been eating totally lousy food. Usually it comes accompanied with exercise and fitness. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the eat a balanced diet and don't eat as much processed foods is, is not going to sell a lot of diet books. It's and it does, it? Yeah. No, it's not sexy. And, and you know what? I think that there's a lot of people who, in order to make good on dietary changes, maybe they need to be scared, right? So there's a lot of people for whom just trying to lose weight or just trying to be fit isn't enough. But if someone says, hey, you're going to prevent dementia or you're going to be able to clear up your skin or you're, you know, whatever promises mm. they're making, maybe that's, that's something that people need to motivate them. At the same time, we have to ask ourselves, do we really want fictional stories or do we really want bad science to be motivating people's health uh, health changes? And I think the answer is no. I think we want people to understand exactly what's going on. If what's happening is that people who go paleo are just cutting, cutting junk food out of their diet, eating less and exercising more, let's, let's call a spade a spade. And I think that's really, really important, especially because there are people out there who are actually sensitive to gluten. There are people out there who actually have celiac. There's people who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. There are people who are sensitive to FODMAPs, uh, which is a kind of short chain carbohydrate. Uh, and so it's important for those people to, to know the truth about their own dietary problems. And with all of the kind of hyperbole floating around, it's it's hard for everyone, myself included, to sort fact from fiction. Well, and, and I think you, in your book, you do kind of address the big ones. Obviously, MSG, which, um, you know, if you gain the research, and then you've got your gluten, which, you know, in your book, you do state that there, there is an aspect of our community that has this problem of gluten, and, um, and it's real, and they need to address it. But then there's a lot of people who kind of think they are in fact, they're not. Um, but also, you you know, the big one right now is sugar, isn't it? Every, sugar's the enemy of everything. Um, and it's the cause of, you know, it's a toxin and it's this, you know, this yeah. kind of, you know, and, and as you say in the book, well, we've eaten fruit for years, you know, why, why wouldn't fruit be the end of the world for us? So, you know, you, 
you 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 are willing to kind of confront some of those bigger areas, aren't you? Yeah, and the sugar thing too. You know, I, I there's no question that people in general uh, is, is you know especially in the in the first world drink far too many sugar sweetened beverages. Yeah. That's that's absolutely the case. People are getting too many of their calories from sugar, and they're not you know fruit. It's it's harder to get lots of calories from an apple than it is from a soda or a slice of cake mm-hmm. or what have you. So uh, there's there's no argument from me that that sugar is hyper palatable and that people are consuming too much of it. At yeah. the same time. I talk to people who wouldn't go on the record saying things like, well, the researchers want to get sodas out of the schools and they know that the best way to do that is scare parents. And the best way to scare parents is to compare soda to drugs. And to me, yeah, you know, they'll say, well, maybe the addiction research isn't quite there yet. Or maybe we know that, you know, maybe we know that soda isn't exactly like cocaine, but that's sure a great analogy to scare people away from soda. And on the one hand, I understand that. Yes. Too much consumption of soda is a problem. On the other hand, the last thing you want to do is, is play fast and loose with the science because 20 years down the line, when, when people find out that that's what was happening, they're going to trust scientists even less. And, and that's really bad. Well, the other thing we see is, you know, when we look at most diets, is a lot of elimination diets where, you know, it's get rid of this aspect of the diet because that's the problem. Um, eventually it comes back to bite people in the bum because while we might necessarily have a good period of weight loss or we might achieve some health goals in the first period, eventually we give in to the elimination, don't we? And we kind of go the other way, don't we? Uh, yeah, you know, this whole 30, it's funny, coming into this space, which, you know, obviously all the people that I talk with yourself, uh, people in the wellness community are very familiar. I didn't know about any of this stuff. So I found about the whole 30 when I was researching this book. And people treat it like some kind of religious ritual. I did another whole 30. I keep doing whole 30s, right? It's it's as if they're in this cyclical binge and purge cycle where they, they go on some kind of draconian diet, then they go off of it. They feel dirty and guilty because they've been cheating, right? It's like I was, you know, I say to people now, you can't cheat on your diet. Your diet is is not a human, you know. It's it's you, you shouldn't feel th- this this depth of connection, uh, almost religious connection with the food that you eat. And I think it's unhealthy to be going through these cycles of well, I'm going to go on another cleanse. You should be able to live your life comfortably with habits that are sustainable and comfortable for you without feeling like you're cheating and then you're clean and then you're cheating and then you're clean. Uh, you know, I I'm 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 fit and I'm healthy and I love my food and. And part of the message I want to preach, if you'll excuse the term, is that you can be healthy and you can have a sustainable life and not have any foods that are taboo. You know, you don't have to live with taboos in order to live well. Well, it's funny you talk about the kind of Puritan values of it, you know, like that this must be, if it's pleasurable, it must be bad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like- I, I think, I think people believe that. I think people think that if something tastes good, if, it must be bad. And if the masses enjoy it, it must be really bad, right? And there's some truth to that because things that are pleasurable are more easily abused. And, you know, that's the same thing for people who get pleasure out of exercise. You have exercise addicts, you know, you have, you, you can become addicted to anything pleasurable, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean then we, we know that the best way to create a, a binge eating disorder is through making some, prohibiting something, right? The forbidden fruit is not a great way of getting yourself to not eat fruit. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? A um, psychologist told me that all the time, that, that if you really want to cut down on something, if you want to have healthy eating, don't, you know, for the love of God, don't forbid it. That's just going to make you want it even more. Uh, one, thing you, um, one thing you talk about in the book, well, 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 there's a few, so many things you talk about in the book, but one thing uh, that you talk about is this whole idea of um, fiction, this, this, uh, the demons of food. Uh, where am I trying to go with this, I suppose, is... Um, actually, I'm going to go move from that question. I'm kind of going to have a question. One of the best chapters in the book, although it's a brilliant book overall, is the chapters where you do the, the, the kind of unpacked diet. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that, that was one of the most fun and actually most dangerous parts of the book, um, was I wanted to take all of the rhetorical techniques that I'd told readers about, the myth of paradise past, the idea that foods are good and bad, the idea that there's a simple miraculous solution waiting for all of your health ills, and turn it into my own fad diet. And so I, I thought one thing that's very modern that people are scared of is packaging and plastics. Yeah. And so what I did is I did what all the authors of these fad diet books do. I went into, I went into the scientific literature. I cherry-picked all of the studies about packaging that showed that 
packaging is dangerous. I overstated the results of those studies, and I came up with a diet that showed that you could cure all of your illnesses and lose tons of weight by eating whatever you wanted as long as it had never been in contact with plastic or aluminum foil, essentially. And what was weird about this, my wife actually helped me a lot. She, she, she came up with all the research and, and outlined the diet, and by the time we were done, we were terrified of plastic. <laughs> so you, you know, created it in yourself. Yeah, we, we were scared. We were like, well, should we really be saran wrapping this? Should we really be putting this in the, into the Ziploc bag? And we had invented it. It was BS that we had come up with. But this kind of rhetoric is so powerful that, that we actually bought into it. And so I, I really wanted people – it's sort of a test right at the end of the book. It's like, well, now you know how this stuff works. Cut your teeth on this diet and see – and see if it still has power over you. And, 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 and it, has, it still has power over me. And, and I'm the one who came up with it. <laughs> the irony of it is, is I actually listened to the audiobook. And in the audiobook, unfortunately, your, your publisher hasn't put the, the next chapter in there. <laughs> and so I'm listening to it. And because and, you kind of you do your section where you talk about what you believe is a better approach to having life. Um, and then you kind of have this unpacked picture. And I'm listening to it. I'm thinking, surely this is a joke. But at the same time, <laughs> as you're doing it, I'm thinking, is it you know because 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 it's so convincing and and even as I knew as the cynic in me was listening to it, I'm like no this is this is crap I'm thinking but it's a pretty good argument <laughs> and then yeah. and then in the audiobook you don't have you've it's missed the chapter where it tells you what you've done and so then it just ends and I'm thinking back it up is it what's happened here and uh, and so yeah so then the next chapter you actually do break it down and show the tricks you've used have you. Yeah, that's actually that's that's right. I've actually gotten emails from people who have listened to the audiobook who and this is scares me, right? Because they've read the whole book, so yeah. they know that I'm doing exactly the opposite of what I've said that you should do through the whole book. And they're emailing me and they're saying, I love the book and I love the unpacked diet. Can you tell me where I can find the you know the coffee filters so, so that they you recommend? Actually, they actually believed that, it. Wow. Yes, yes. But, but and, in fairness to them, like I knew, like while I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, no, this is I, I, I was just like weird. But then even as I was a cynic and I knew it was kind of deep down, I knew it wasn't right. It was so convincing. It really was. And you well, would start to think to yourself, well, maybe there is some truth to this. It's incredibly convincing. And this is one of the things that people need to realize. You know, when you say it, you go to that paleo conference and there's all these people raising their hands. You know, you go to the vegan conference where the people are going to be very opposed to much of what the paleo conference yeah, of course, is saying. Be a and they're going to all raise their hands. And yeah. you look at the testimonials on Amazon for every diet book and yeah, they're they all, work, they? they all work. Everything yeah. works, you know, yeah. and are there some diets that work for people better than others? Of course there are. But, but the truth is there have been people testifying to faith healing, right? For a time memorial, there were these giant revivals where people were cured of everything. And, and, Yes, there's a, there's a grain of truth to some of these diets. Low carb, for example, seems to work better than other diets in the short term for inducing weight loss. Unfortunately, for most people, I, I don't think a disordered relationship with carbohydrates is particularly appealing as, as a kind of lifelong dietary practice. I myself prefer not to have to be afraid of carbohydrates. And if, if you've undertaken a low carb diet in order to lose weight, well, you become invested in that and you become attached to it. And you also become scared that if you go off it, you're going to gain gain weight or become unhealthy. And, yeah. and that's really dangerous. I mean, something I wish I'd mentioned in the book that, that I talk about more now is that a restrictive diet is a medical intervention, period. End of story. And that's how they should be viewed. If you are undertaking a restrictive diet, understand that there are potential side effects. Understand that as a long-term proposition, it's going to be difficult, that there are emotional consequences to restricting your diet when it comes to socializing with people, when it comes to seeing your family or going to holidays. And so we ought to not just say, hey, try it out, right? No one says, hey, try out this pharmaceutical just to see if it works, right? I mean, restrictive diets are are, are big, important things that have a, an effect on our mind and body. And we, and we need to approach them like any medical intervention with caution. I, I think another aspect to add to that is that there's the, um, the identity crisis as well, because if you're on a restrictive diet, what we tend to find is that we all have moments of weakness and we'll, you know, let's say you eat some chocolate or if you're on a low carb, you have carbs, then it's I'm a failure. So people put this emotional attachment to their character, which then can have a flow on effect to other areas of life, which can be really damaging. 
Absolutely. It's, it's, it's really bad when you're, when you're constantly judging yourself in that way. And then what you do is you, is you try to make, you, you, try, you essentially confess, right? But for a diet, it's like you say, well, I, I cheated on it. I look up cheat and diet online and these scary sites come up that are like, don't beat yourself up. But, but at the same time, what they're really saying is beat yourself up. You did something really bad. You know, they're like, it's not the end of the world. All you have to do is make sure that you purify yourself for the next two months. And I'm yeah. thinking, well, that's gotta be, it's like, it's like an abusive relationship, you know, yeah. where you become dependent on the people that are telling you that you are guilty and bad. Well, it's interesting. I've got a client who I worked with a while ago and, and she was in a situation where uh, she was always doing extreme restrictive diets and always failing because they were just, no one could achieve them in the long term. And, uh, and so what would happen was then she would emotionally beat herself up and then she'd go to really destructive bad eating. So she'd overeat. Um, and, and so she was always losing the battle that made her feel that she was just a failure at life. No, not just bad at eating and, and the weight thing, that she saw herself and her self-perception of herself was this, I am just someone who, who can never never achieve anything. And it was just a real, it was actually really, really damaging. And one thing we worked on her was just extreme diets don't work. You just get, just get a healthy habit happening. And, and we got it to a place where she started to, her self-perception shifted to a much healthier place. But it's purely through actually removing all those kind of crazy kind of trying to achieve this outcome and actually making it feel successful through healthy eating. Yeah, that's. You, I, I'm glad you brought that up, Bevan, because that was something when I got into this, what I was really looking at was history and science. That's what I was interested in. But I started running into all these tragic stories, like the one that you're telling of, of people who, who became disordered eaters when they didn't have to. And in the process, sort of developed this disordered relationship with themselves. And again, you know, sometimes these restrictive diets work for people. You know, there are people that are happy being Puritans and never dancing. And, you know, you know there, there are people for whom severe lifestyles work. But for the vast majority of us who live with and have family who aren't a part of these ways of life, it's very, very difficult to maintain that and and it's very very difficult to keep up that identity it can be painful so it's you know again be very very cautious and that's not to say of course and I know you I'm sure you agree with me and my list your listeners agree as well is that you can definitely eat more healthfully you can make changes in your life that will be sustainable over the long term it's not to say that we should just do whatever we want eat whatever we want yeah. not exercise but there's a big difference between that and believing in these myths and believing, making food into this good, evil, pure, impure world, that, that I think is, is taking it a bit too far. A lot of people are going to say, okay, well, obviously, you know, what you're saying is interesting and I'm sure some people probably still disagree with you, but, you know, what would be the, you know, because at the same time, obesity is a massive problem. And, uh, you know, we look at the statistics and the, the you know, far out, man, I was watching a documentary about American obesity the other day, and it's just scary. Um, so what are, what are your thoughts on how, as a society and as a community and as individuals, can we have a healthier relationship with food so we can actually be a healthier being? I, so I, I actually, I, as a, you know, a disclaimer, he's a, he's a friend of mine as well, but there's this book called The Dorito Effect that just came out by a guy named Mark Schatzker. And Schatzker's argument is that the real problem is that we don't understand flavor, that, that what we really need to do is cultivate palates where we want to eat healthfully and where we're not eating healthfully to eat healthfully. We're eating healthfully because that's what tastes good to us. Okay. So for me personally... I don't crave uh, there, I don't crave a Big Mac. I don't crave soda simply because my culinary culture, what I do, the way I cook, the foods I enjoy, and and how I was raised, thankfully by my parents, is is home cooked home cooked delicious meals. You know yeah. that's that's what I like. And and my parents never once gave a thought to being healthy in the same way that you know whether it's the Japanese that you idolize or the Mediterranean diet or whoever it is that you're idolizing. These diets didn't come about because they were trying to be healthy. They came about because they were trying to develop a, a culinary culture uh, based on seasonal foods, foods that taste delicious, good cooking practices. And so I think that what we really need to do is, is start making food a centerpiece of our culture again, not something that we need to get done quickly, not a means to an end, whether that end is health or pleasure, um, you know, like just getting your sugar buzz or whatever, but making it a really important part of our culture. And I think if we do that, we'll be able to fight 
you know, the obesity epidemic, but also the, the fact that even people who are not overweight are still very unhealthy because they're sedentary and eating crap foods all the time. We'll be able to fight that in a way that, you know, like a diet is sustainable over the long term. We can only twist society's arm so much, but eventually, you know, if we want to have a sustainable solution to these problems, we need to change the way in which we think about food and culinary culture. And, and in your book, you talk about um, you know some of the, some of the tips you do give is is this whole idea of have dinner at the table, take your time, don't rush your food. You know those types of um, enjoying the experience of food. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if you if you enjoy if you enjoy the experience of food, you'll find that you you eat less. <laughs> Really? And you eat, you eat better. Absolutely. So I, I recommend in the book this, I say eating in the fourth dimension, which is don't eat during time you've set aside for something else. Set aside time to eat. Mm. And I found that you actually consume less food because you're not eating mindlessly. You're not eating while you're doing other activities. And so, you know, I'm not saying, you know, make this a way of life, but, but try as best you can to to prioritize food as food, to sort of be grateful for your food and know where it comes from and be, you know, either have cooked it yourself or, you know, sometimes you don't have time to cook it yourself, but then realize that, that you don't have time to cook it yourself and still try to savor whatever it is that you're eating. I think that's really, really important. And I wish more people started thinking about wellness and health holistically. And when I say that, it's funny, a lot of your listeners will be like, but that's exactly, I go to a holistic doctor and they told me to get on paleo or whatever. But holistic means mental and physical health. And I think if you're constantly worrying about what your food is going to do to your health, you're not really mentally and physically healthy. A holistic approach to your life means understanding that food isn't just about you know, helping you lose weight or helping you biohack yourself to optimize your mind. It's, it's a part of a much larger beautiful culinary tradition. It's about what you ate with your parents growing up. It's about sharing celebratory meals with your children and, and so on. And so I think that's a part of food that we need to bring front and center instead of relegating it to the sidelines. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, for the people listening to this today, because um, I'm sure you know, we've got a lot of people's ears kind of perking, um, what would be your message that you want to, to take home from kind of your work? I want people to know that they don't need to be afraid of their food and they also shouldn't expect too much from their food. That's the religious side of food. The Taoist monks that I study, the story of Adam and Eve, they all make food about salvation and damnation. You're living in the Garden of Eden, then you eat the apple that was here, the fruit that was advertised by the snake, and boom, you're in pain and you're dying and you're <laughs> suffering. You've got to do agriculture. Yeah. You know? And what I would say is break free of that. When you, when you reduce the power of food, you will reduce the power of food over you. And, and that's a really important message to keep in mind. If you're someone that struggles with food, don't make food into this giant enemy because then it really will be this giant enemy. Try to make sustainable changes to your diet. Don't believe people that are telling you that, that there's a miraculous diet that can save you, but if you don't follow it, you'll die. And I think that will improve your health, mental and physical, when it comes to food and nutrition. Um, and, and obviously, by using tools like your book, you can start to understand how you have been maybe manipulated to think things that are actually maybe damaging for you in the long term. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping for people. And, you know, I, I am of the, you know, people say, well, what about the, you know, everyone told that the government told us that fat was bad and now they're telling us that eggs are good. We can't trust them either. And, and you know what? That's true. There's a lot. It's not just crazy quack doctors who are guilty of this. Nutrition science as a field has oversold itself, much in the same way that economics as a field has oversold itself, right? So there's a lot of fancy mathematical equations, but you've got some people saying that you need to raise taxes and you've got other Nobel Prize winners saying you need to lower taxes. And that's because the truth is economics is, is not as scientifically sound on its proofs of what taxes you should have or not have as something like physics. And the same is true in nutrition, right? That we don't know as much as we would like to know about nutrition. And so the government, as well as quack doctors, has oversold us its knowledge. And it's time to recognize that and be humble about where we currently are with the science on food and, and where how we should talk about it. It's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm a fitness professional and, you know, people look to me for advice and all the rest of it. And, and I'm, I, I actually have a pretty healthy relationship with food and uh, that 
like I have chocolate every night and, um, you know, like I, I drink some Coke occasionally, you know, I, but, but at the same time, it's all within healthy levels and all this. But when people find out that I have like a, I have four pieces of chocolate every night and I love it. And so like, <laughs> I really love it. And, uh, People like it blows people mind away that a guy who's meant to be a fitness professional would have chocolate in his life, and it's like, well, why wouldn't I really enjoy my chocolate? And, you know, but it's just that healthy kind of perspective with it, isn't it? Yeah, no. People think that they think to themselves, well, how could you possibly that 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 how could you possibly consume these foods that I have put into the bad column? I mean, soda. People would just be shocked, you know, yeah. to hear that that a fitness professional could consume. A soda and and not you know I don't know keel over and die or yeah, become yeah. a, a soda addict. I do choose the diet option, but you know I, I, I'll have some occasionally, and it's like, but I I do have this kind of everything's okay, but obviously there's some foods I'm going to stay away from, and I might have them just at minimal levels, but yeah, you know like yeah, it's it's just it's such a fascinating topic, and it's um, and I just think that your work's a really important work to be doing because the more the more understanding we have in life, the clearer we can make better decisions around ourselves, and it seems to be. That as time goes on, you know, we're making more poor decisions around nutrition. And if we can have a greater understanding, we can. Because the thing is, is where do I put my energy on what I'm working on in myself? And if I'm putting my energy in an area that ultimately ends up hurting me, well, that's not good use of my energy. Whereas, let's say you have got a bad diet right now, and you know it, and, you, and deep down you know that you're having too much fast food, and you're, you know, you're eating too much sugary food, and and you know, you're drinking too much soda, and that. Well, the area should, you should be putting your energy on is reducing that and replacing it with some good healthy habits. Um, if I'm then focusing on all these kind of, kind of you know, religious, religious dogma around nutrition, it's actually focusing me somewhere else, I'm kind of wasting that opportunity, aren't I? Uh, you, you couldn't, I, I really couldn't have said it any better. I mean, I, I totally agree. And I think that one of the ironies is that despite the incredible proliferation of nutrition information, it's not doing anything. No. It's clearly not doing anything. The people, the people that should be worrying about this stuff I, probably aren't anymore. Or, you know, for every 300 testimonials you see on Amazon about a book working, there's, of course, 40,000 people that bought the book, tried the whole 30, dropped out on day two, and yeah. now eat the same way that they did before but feel slightly guiltier about yeah. it, right? So maybe these things are helping a select minority of people who then evangelize the diets, but clearly it's not working as a sustainable population-wide solution to our bad relationship with, as you put it, fast food. So let's put our energy into, into a solution that, that isn't so dogmatic and that actually has the potential to affect change in everyone over a long period of time. Just, just lastly, you do recommend a diet at the end, but it's not so much to do with food. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I want people to detox, and of course, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's yeah, that's it. you do promote a detox. <laughs> I do. I and, and you know, I, by the end of the book, I think people realize that that's a that's a joke because I think that detoxes are silly. But I think one thing that a lot of the people who are reading my book might might benefit from is detoxing from all of this nutrition information. So I know people who told me I interviewed them that they're addicted to Instagram accounts, they're addicted to their mailing list where they get a new clean recipe every day that they can try. They have to. To read about the latest scientific study that tells you how to treat, you know, arthritis or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that the study is saying, you know, maybe that's part of the problem, hmm. not part of the solution. So the detox I recommend is for a month, just cut yourself off from any nutrition information. Don't read the labels on your food. If you're eating packaged food, don't count your calories. Don't look at your Instagram account delete the emails from the vegan newsletter that you've subscribed to and see how detoxing from all of that hype and hyperbole changes your relationship with your food. And I think people will find that, that, that it actually makes a big difference in how they think about health and wellness. It's funny you say that because one of my clients is one is kind of the traditional person who kind of, um, is, is gets caught up in the culture of certain kind of philosophies around food and and she's always kind of battling which way she's going and I gave her your book to to read and um and she said oh the sense of relief when she read about the detox diet was was mind-blowing and it's given her a free space in her life and it's um just really fascinating it was a real true example of what you're talking about there that's really, it makes me really happy to hear that too, because so often the blowback I hear from people are saying, you know, essentially, why do you have to rain on our parade? Or why do you, why are you saying that I'm bad or wrong? And so it's, it's nice to, it's nice to hear from people who, who gather that the message of this book is not, hey, everyone out there, you're stupid, but rather, hey, 
maybe you can lighten up a little bit on yourself. Maybe you can lighten up a little bit with your relationship with food and actually have the same health benefits that you're getting, but not feel scared and not, and feel empowered about your relationship with food instead of feeling like you're, you're constantly on the brink of cheating or being dirty. Yeah. Guys, the name of the book is The Gluten Lion. And I think one thing, you know, like I'm sure it's funny. I don't, I don't normally do nutrition in big way on the show. Um, uh, a, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm obviously I'm a fitness professional. I have some level, but I'm not a fully qualified nutritionist. Um, and so it's an area I don't necessarily go into. And the, the times I have, it's been really fascinating that the, you do get a lot of kind of like the only negativity feedback I get is when I talk about nutrition, which is really interesting. <laughs> uh, and um, because again, people have these kind of very set in their ways way of thinking, and anything that contradicts it. Is, is really kind of confronting to them. And I think one thing that is you're listening to today's interview is to to really be aware of your own confirmation bias, you know, to really be aware of what are the things that, that I've set in stone in myself that maybe I need to reflect on and maybe look at them in a different light and maybe understand that maybe there isn't, that isn't necessarily 100% true and to learn different meta, methods so that I can become a bit more of a, a critical thinker in a way that leads to better decisions in my life. And um, Alan's book is is a really great place to start. It's called The the Gluten Lie. You can get it on Amazon, obviously, anywhere else. You can get it around bookstores and stuff like that, Alan. Yeah, absolutely. You can get it, hopefully, in any any independent bookstore or in, uh, or in bricks-and-mortar bookstores as well. So it, and, uh, it's, it's available wherever books are sold. My website is, right now, it's just for the book. It's www.theglutenlie.com. And you can read the introduction to the book for free there just to get a little bit of a sense of what it's like. And I highly recommend it. And, and as I say, when you get to that last part of the book and he does the, uh, the what was it, the restrictive diet of the, the no-plastic <laughs> diet, uh, the unpacked diet was when you get to that, it will blow your mind away. It's it's a brilliant book team, and um, yeah, if you want to check out his work, or if you want to go see Aaron on his website, go to theglutenlie.com and he can you can point to him, and I'm sure he'll answer any of your questions. Uh, thanks for your time today, mate. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview. I hope you had some good insights in there. It's, um, it's an interview I enjoyed a lot, and I just think it's important to have some perspective on these things. So, yep, uh, yep. hopefully you guys got a lot out of that. Anyway, I'm going to pretty much wrap up today's show. We will be back with John in the studios, back to the traditional I Am Talk show next week. You can go to imtalk.me. Uh, also, I want to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Extreme Endurance, and the patrons. If you want to be a patron of the show, go to Bevan Jane. I'm oh, sorry. I am talk.me. Uh, and actually, if you enjoyed this, the interviews I've done over the last couple of weeks, you can go to my podcast, The Bevan James Isles Show. It's kind of about the behavior side of the exercise and life in general. So you can check that out there. Um, other than that, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for yourselves and being yourselves. And we'll see you next week in the studio. I'm Russ. I'm Don't Train hard, train smart. Kia kaha. <laughs>